0: Fritz Mondale was a politician, statesman, diplomat, and lawyer who served as a United States Senator from Minnesota from 1964 to 1976 and as the 42nd Vice President of the United States from 1977 to 1981 under President Jimmy Carter. In 1984, Mondale was the Democratic Party's nominee for President of the United States. As a senator, Mondale had been the primary sponsor of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, transformative legislation that outlawed the refusal to sell or rent a dwelling to any person because of their race, color, religion, or national origin. Mondale was the first vice president to have an office in the White House and established the concept of an activist vice president. He began the tradition of weekly lunches with the president, which has continued to this day. More importantly, he expanded the vice president's role from figurehead to presidential advisor, full-time participant, and troubleshooter for the administration. Subsequent vice presidents have followed this model. In 1984, Mondale made history as the Democratic presidential nominee when he selected New York Congresswoman and Queens native Geraldine Ferraro as his running mate, making her the first woman on a national ticket. In August of 2019, we had the honor and privilege of spending some time with former Vice President Mondale as Joe Lockhart and I traveled to Minneapolis to interview him for Words Matter. Joe had served in a senior position on Mondale's 1984 presidential campaign, and as far as Fritz Mondale was concerned, that made Joe part of the family. They had kept in touch over the years the former vice president regularly held events and get-togethers for his ever-loyal former staffers whenever he traveled, and Joe Lockhart was always in attendance, no matter how busy he was. At 91, Mondale was still very sharp and, as always, polite, courteous, and inquisitive. He asked about Joe's wife and children by name and remembered small details about their last visit that Joe himself had forgotten. Even in his 10th decade, Mondale wanted to understand all he could about how to communicate with people and was fascinated by podcasts, how they worked, how many people listened, and why they were popular. What impressed me most about him were his humility, self-awareness, and introspection. While most politicians can muster faux humility during a campaign, that's not what Walter Mondale was all about. As with everything else, His was sincere and genuine. Mondale was brutally honest and realistic about why his 1984 campaign had been soundly defeated. And even with the microphones turned off, he was complimentary of former presidents Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Unlike most politicians, Mondale took full responsibility, even for things that were not his fault, for the historic loss to Reagan-Bush. As he got ready to leave, the former vice president was the embodiment of Minnesota Nice. He thanked us for making the trip, told us how much he enjoyed the interview, and made Joe promise to send his regards to his family. He even asked if we were all set with a ride to the airport. As he walked us to the elevator, he shook my hand and gave Joe a big, sincere hug. He told us both to keep up the good fight. Last weekend, just days before his passing, Walter Mondale sent a final message to his staff. "'Dear team,' he wrote, "'well, my time has come. "'I'm eager to rejoin Joan and Eleanor. "'Before I go, I wanted to let you know "'how much you mean to me. "'Never has a public servant "'had a better group of people working at their side. "'Together we have accomplished so much, "'and I know you will keep up the good fight. Joe in the White House certainly helps.'" I always knew it would be okay if I arrived someplace and was greeted by one of you. My best to all of you, Fritz. With that, let's listen to Joe Lockhart's August 2019 interview with the late, great, former Vice President, Walter Mondale.
1: Vice President Walter Mondale, welcome to The Contenders. Thank you so much. Let's go back to the beginning. Did you always know that public service was your calling? I think so. I grew up in a small
2: town in southern Minnesota, Elmore. Maybe 800 people on a good day. And I was in high school, and I was thinking about it and thinking about it. I talked with my dad about it. I talked with anybody who listened to me about it. And then I decided I'd run. And I had nothing to go on. I mean, I had no money, no, no experience, nothing. But I thought I could do it, and off I went.
1: So you did a variety of uh, public service roles. You were the state attorney general, senator, vice president. Yeah. When did it hit you? Did it hit you early on that someday you might be president, you might want to run for president?
2: Good question. I don't think I got a good answer. I think it just sort of grew on me when I was attorney general, I I don't think, I thought there was any connection between what I was doing and being in the White House. But then when I became a senator, you know, I guess I started thinking about it. I had my friend Humphrey all the time providing the example. Sometime when I was a senator, I think I said, well, maybe I can do this. When
1: Humphrey got out, because so long as Humphrey was there, I was going to be for him. It's quite an audacious thought. It's the hardest job in the world. It's the most powerful job in the world. What in the world made you think that this is something you could do?
2: Well, you know, I persuaded myself of that, but I would have to say I wasn't sure. It was, it was, it remains a mountain of a job. Some people have persuaded themselves they can be good presidents. When they get there, they're not. I hope that if I got there, I'd be a good president. And then, of course, when I became Vice president, that was really a nice way to look at it because I was in the White House every day and so on. So in
1: 1975, you flirted with the idea of running and, mm-hmm. and, and decided not to. What was the hesitation there?
2: Well, I, I campaigned around the country for over a year, and my pools were worse than when I started. <laughs> so I thought the reason. harder I worked, the worse it'd be, so I got out. It was not a hope-inspired situation. So in
1: 1983, when we first met, uh, you were all in. Talk a little bit about how you came to the decision to run. Who did you talk to? What was the conversation like in your family? Were there real hesitations about getting in, or was it just some great unknown uh, adventure to embark on? I think a little of both. You know,
2: I'd had more experience around presidents, so there was less of the unknown there. I had uh, considerable experience in Washington by this time. I, I knew a lot of the people who had run or were going to run, and I could measure myself better against... If you measure yourself against the world, you're probably going to feel inadequate. But if you measure yourself against who actually runs and who might be present... Once you know those people, it's not that they are not good people, but you realize this, is, this job is going to be held by a human being. It can't have qualities that humans don't possess. And once you can scale it to human proportions,
1: it's a little easier to handle. So it's a little bit like you're not sure that you can scale that mountain But you look around and you see that you think you can do it better and you can do a better job for people than the the others. And and you see climbing, maybe
2: the mountain is as high as you thought it was. And then you get more engaged and compelled by issues too. I think it'll push you. It's not just a, a flat issue, should I be president? It's what kind of issues are important enough that you should be there to speak out for them. And I think that makes a difference too.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the campaign. It's been in my experience, I've done five of these presidential campaigns that some of the best candidates are tripped up by not being able to transition from what they were to who they want to be. I, I think that's right. You had the benefit of a a very experienced core group, people who'd worked for you I in did. the vice president's office, you know, some people from Minnesota, some people from around. But you also had to bring in another group of experts. You know, The campaign chairman was Jim Johnson, yep. who is a, uh, Minnesota. a, a Minnesotan to the core. And the campaign manager was Bob Beckel, who, however you describe Minnesota, you describe Bob Beckel as the opposite. Yeah. He wasn't Minnesota nice. No, he wasn't. How? It, was, it wasn't either. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. So how did you, and you had you had great people uh, on that campaign, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Tully, Mike Ford, Tony Corrado, mm-hmm. Tom Donlin, mm-hmm. all people who went on to do things. How did you manage and how did you think about putting together the right people to get first the nomination and then to run in the general? I know
2: we were looking for the best people. We were looking for people that, would be congenial. You can't, you can't have somebody in there that may have all the talents, but you can't work with. You. So you had to look with workability, and then then you had to have people who shared your enthusiasm and commitment for on some issues that were important. You know what I'm talking about. But some people click in that environment. They're good at it. They want to do it. They, the The 14-hour day guys, and they. They, they never stop, but, but you can almost tell when you meet them who they are, I found. I didn't know that at first. And what I try to do is to sort out the possibilities and end up with the best campaign staff I could. And I think I ended up with a very fine
1: campaign staff. You made one mistake, but we won't focus on let's, that. Let's, versus, dro- let's drop that right yeah, now. right. Yeah. One, one big mistake, but that's okay. Let's Let me
2: talk. ask you a few questions. Uh, okay. Was that your first campaign?
1: Well, I had worked uh, mostly yeah, mostly as a volunteer for the Carter uh, Mondale Reelection and then had a, a staff position. Were you down in Georgia? No, I was in uh, this was in 1980 uh, in DC. I was working for, you know, in the press office, but this was the first professional uh, yeah. job and it was the most um uh, formative as far as learning about campaigns, yeah, learning about politics, I think and so. uh, learning at the 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 heel of the masters. You know, both you and you know guys like Jim Johnson and Tom. Did you Donald. meet Mike Berman? Uh, we're going to talk about Mike Berman a little bit later <laughs> on because, of course, I, I I I do like to tell people that one of the great qualities you can have in working in a campaign is to be fearless. And I was young enough to be fearless, mm-hmm. and I wasn't afraid to tell. The former vice President of the United States, what I thought. I wasn't afraid to tell anyone. I was afraid of Mike Berman. And, I, <laughs> it was, and we'll, we'll come to that at the end. But, and I think every, I think you were afraid of Mike yes, Berman, and he wanted us that way. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you jump into this race and you are the front runner. But it's, it's not like you didn't have a strong field of candidates you were running against. The candidate I remember uh, the campaign being obsessed with was John Glenn. There was there was the movie coming out, The Right Stuff. Yeah, he's, um, he's
2: a great senator and a remarkable uh, career in, in the military.
1: Yeah, and some of you know, Senator Cranston, Senator Hollings, Gary Hart, who we will talk a little bit more, Reverend Jackson. Talk a little bit about both the advantages and the pitfalls of being the front runner. People will draw the the parallels to, I guess, Joe Biden now, who's experiencing some of these things. How was it yes. for you? Let me just say, it's, it's better to be
2: seen as the front runner than as the back runner. It's it's part of the game, and I was seen as a front runner. A couple things happen right away. The eight or nine people are running against you. Spend most of the day thinking of ways of pulling you down. So when, when I'd get in debates, it used, used to be standing around there, there'd be an hour, an hour and a half of, most of which were a, attacks by good people trying to figure out some way of getting you out of the front runner status. I remember New Hampshire, where we had one of these debates, about eight people and we were all seated and we'd go around. It was eight on one all the time. So finally, about halfway through, I stood up. I said, okay, why don't you all just take some time off, rest, relax. I'm going to talk about me for a while. You guys have been cutting me up, and I think I'd like to set this straight if I could.
1: (laughs) That's what you had to do. Yeah, yeah. One of the issues that you had to deal with that the others didn't was you were vice president for Jimmy Carter. And in 1983 Jimmy Carter was still an unpopular politician. How did you manage taking advantage of your service without and distancing yourself where where necessary and not being tied so closely to someone you worked with and admired? I never did never did handle that well.
2: I wanted to run on my own record. I wanted to run on what kind of president I would be, but part of that was a discussion of how well Carter and I did in the White House. Inevitable, you can't escape that. I, I, I greatly admired Carter. I admire him today. I wasn't going to kick him around and and uh, do that. So I just tried the best I could. Talk about myself and what uh, I'd like to see done, and so on. And if they brought up Carter, I talked Carter. I didn't get an answer that that would have uh, pardoned me from responsibility
1: for our time in the White House. Other uh, vice presidents that have run for president have had to deal with this. You know, mm-hmm. you know, Al Gore jumps to mind as particularly being. I, vexed. I don't want to
2: get into names now, yeah. but some of them dealt with it by putting down their their presidential partner. I didn't do that. I mean, he he was a friend to me, and he was. I thought, I still think, a great president, and he conscientious, honest guy. And we had a miserable four years, no question about it. And it wasn't all his fault. <laughs> that's not an inspirational answer, is it?
1: Well, it's it's an honest answer, and I think my political experience tells me that your approach, without naming names, worked better than others. Uh, so, but we won't. We'll stop there. Let's talk a little bit about the campaign. You got off to a great start. Iowa was a was a crowded field, and you inflicted a foe on butt-kicking of the rest of the field, one more than 50%.
2: Yes, Iowa was, of course, our neighbor still is. I think Amy's looking at that now. I had helped Humphrey down there two campaigns. I'd uh, been in our campaign, and now I was running on my own. And I jumped into Iowa hard and heavy. And even though we had good candidates, they they didn't have that connection with Iowa that I did. I believe. I believe that made a big difference.
1: So given that, how surprised were you, you know, just a week later when the New Hampshire results came in, which didn't go as well?
2: You know, here's what I thought. I thought winning big in Iowa would give me momentum in New Hampshire. No. (laughs) Uh, New Hampshire, it's our job to pick the president, not Iowa. And so it became almost a negative, I
1: think. I remember um, one of my favorite conversations in the aftermath was uh, talking to your old friend, Chuck Campion, Mm -hmm. who ran New Hampshire for you and was so frustrated and angry. And I said, Chuck, what happened? And he said, "We were so well organized; we drove most of Gary Hart's voters to the polls that day, uh, <laughs> and, and it, it did. But all of a sudden, the, the campaign changed. You, you were it did. You went from being the invincible front runner and the standard bearer of the Democratic Party." to Gary Hart somehow transforming you into the old-style yep, Democrat, yep, yep. the past rather than the future. Yep. Good ideas versus bad ideas. Yeah, you were probably in your mid-50s at the time. You certainly weren't old. <laughs> yeah, how, yeah. How, did, how did that make you feel?
2: Uh, I felt awful because I, I, I felt mad that I couldn't somehow resort the issues so that they, I thought, would reflect you know, the honest situation there. Gary snuck up on me. New Hampshire, a lot when there's not a real party fight in both parties. The Republican voters can cross over, and they do, they're good at it. Reagan wasn't really under challenge. So when when we had our primary, I carried the Democrats, but I lost more votes than I needed because a lot of more Republicans. They weren't gonna be
1: for me. So now it's a much different fight you're in the fight you know of, of your political life i remember thinking at the time it was a little bit like the bataan death march we <laughs> we, we were I, i'm going to give you a sense of here of some of the glorious job responsibilities i had we were supposed to go on i think it was about a three-day trip that ended 57 days later and one of the my jobs was to coordinate all of the reporters with their spouses or families at home to get them new clothes um, and and <laughs> we used to send How'd us. How'd you get a job uh, like that? I, I got any job that needed to be done was my job. One was um, getting
2: getting their clothes there. Was was getting their
1: clothes there, and we based on a, how they looked. I think you failed. I think I did <laughs> fail. I think I did fail. Anyway, this was a very tough political time for you, and and I and I distinctly remember the night of Super Tuesday. You had a uh, victory speech planned, and you had a concession speech Mm -hmm. planned because you knew it could be over. Talk about that.
2: We weren't sure we were going to make it. We had to be ready with a statesmanlike acceptance of defeat. We had to be ready to move forward if we won. And as your question implies, I was not sure at all we were going to make it. You You get a feel for the public. As a candidate, if you work hard, that I think it's better than any poll, because you can see it in their eyes. And I can see
1: I was certain. It's interesting, I think, when public figures, I think anyone, when they go through tough times, they they find out who their friends are. And they find out who the people they thought were their friends aren't their friends. Who'd you turn to then? I mean, was it the was it your family? You know, was it was it A the family close supporters? and I
2: had three or four really close in old time friends: uh, Mike Berman, Dick Mo, Jim Johnson, Maxine Isaacs, yeah. and and of course Joan and the kids. Yeah. I'm sure I've forgotten people. And then I remember the final, really last shootout. I won in Alabama and Georgia. I mean, nobody guessed that Walter Mondale from... But I went out there worked so hard. A lot of the congressmen down there served with me, were nice to me. And uh, I still remember that night that when I won. That was, that was, um, for me, a
1: remarkable day. During that, you know, 50-day span, did you learn a lot about yourself? What did you learn? I learned I could really be tough.
2: I learned that... I could go hard for days without needing a lot of sleep. I learned that uh, in many ways it's more satisfying to campaign in adversity than it is uh, when the sun is shining. I could see that that campaign was working, but it required me to make it work. Gary Hart got himself on the wrong side of some issues down there, and he couldn't get
1: out of it. Let's talk about one specific day during that period where you you turned the tables on on Gary Hart, and it was the debate in Georgia. Talk a little bit about the where's the beef line. Um, Clearly, you were out campaigning all the time. You were not watching TV commercials. No, no, no. It wasn't something that you came up with.
2: I would discuss these debates with my staff, of course, and I remember Bob Beckel said there was this one ad where this old woman would say, where's the beef? Because we were trying to figure out how we could deal with uh, Gary's argument that he was much better educated than I was, knew more than I did, and without evidence of any of that, and so we came up with this: "Where's the beef?" And I didn't know what it meant, but uh, you know, I, I was pretty uh, desperate there, and so I said, "Where's the beef?" And you could see his face fell apart. He could, he couldn't, he couldn't handle it. Never did handle it.
1: I remember sitting in the audience and thinking, that worked a lot better than I thought it was going to work. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you're right. He just he he didn't, and it became the, the symbol of a new idea without anything behind it is yes. no
2: idea at all. And that so that really helped me because it punctured uh, the major part of his case, uh, and he made it worse by kind of trying to keep coming up with new answers to that. He never did.
1: So you survived uh the 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 death march, but there it, there was a slog to get enough convention delegates oh. all all spring. I remember uh, I'm not sure you were ever informed of the strategy, but uh, you occasionally got a few days off and got to go on vacation and, I did and yes I was, <laughs> and Mike Berman knew how much you didn't want staff around on vacation. you just wanted to be with your family, yeah. which is understandable, so his idea was since. I was around the same age as Eleanor and, and yeah. Ted. I think I'm right between them. Yeah, I would, Ted right. was a year older. Eleanor was a year younger yeah. than me. Yeah. That they would send me a staff, and you would just maybe think that I was one of your kids. Uh, <laughs> but I, re- I remember sitting in you know, somebody's house on the beach hour after hour with you calling each of these delegates one at a time. You probably didn't think that's what it was going to come to. And then in some ballroom someplace when you were f- finally over the top, how satisfying at the end of the day, however anticlimactic it was, to know that you've well, you would gotten it done.
2: You can't put it in words. This has been my life effort. I didn't know if I was going to win. I remember in the part of the early primary down in, in Alabama, I called Mike Berman. I said, look, we better, well, we hope to win. We better get ready for a defeat here because I think it might we might lose it. We were campaigning right up through the convention, even the last couple of days, we didn't know if we had it. We were still working on yeah,
1: it. yeah we were I th- I, my memory is we were about a week out as the nominee of the Democratic Party, you really only have one consequential constitutional duty, uh, and that's to choose a vice president. Politically, it may not matter. It often doesn't matter. But talk to me a little bit about how you approached how am I going to pick this person how much of it was politics how much of it was i've been vice president i know what the job is and i know I'm a heartbeat from being president
2: we spent a lot of time talking about who my running mate should be i became convinced that if if we just put on another campaign with two men particularly in that environment which is hard to remember now where People wanted change, women wanted to be in the the game, not just outside watching and helping. And uh, we we came up with the idea of asking a woman to run with me. And uh, Geraldine Ferraro was the person I asked. She was a good candidate, but I believe we started running into something that we've seen a lot of since. We saw it, in, I think, in Hillary's campaign. Deep down, there's millions of Americans who don't want a woman in that White House. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, and I think they're wrong. And I remember, as a young guy, when there were a lot of people told me you shouldn't have a Catholic in the White House. We got over it once we went through it. And I think that will happen with women because you know we, we they accept women now as governors and senators, both of our senators from Minnesota are women. But when you talk about giving power, as I was, to women, stirred up the animals, I think. I, I can't explain that.
1: Would it surprise you that a lot of young people don't know that you're the person who put a woman on the ticket, or that even that there was a woman on the ticket in, you know, way back in ancient history, 1984? Nothing
2: surprises me anymore. That That's about... Back there with George Washington, as far as a lot of these kids think, it it was another time. It's, I just you got to accept that.
1: So uh, let me ask you just a straightforward political question. Given everything you know and we've been through, would you pick uh, a woman again? Yes. Why?
2: I would like to see us break the gender gap in America. I'd like to see— strong women get into positions at all levels of government where we're drawing not just on 50% of America's talent, but 100%. And I thought that for a long time. I think we've made a lot of progress at state and local level, none at the presidential level.
1: So before we move off the, B, the VP, I'm just going to share one story with you. Because you were busy, you probably didn't notice, but it's still one of my favorite moments in politics. Um, you'll remember that a lot of the people you were considering came out to North Oaks and visited with you and then mm-hmm. would go out and talk to the press. And I think the last one was Reverend Jackson. Um, <laughs> and it became clear as the meeting entered its second hour that Reverend Jackson's strategy was to be the person who met with you for the longest. And I Is remember, that what it was? Well, yeah. well because the, as the meeting entered its third hour when, when Bob Beckel had three times asked to try to end the meeting – and uh, my boss, Maxine Isaacs, the yes. press secretary, had walked in several times and said, "You know we you know this is, we're, it. We're, this is it. can we wrap?" And Reverend Jackson said, "No, and you were a good host." And yeah. said you were going to keep him long enough." And I remember turning to Maxine and saying, "Can I try something?" And she was like, "Yeah, whatever." and I, I walked in and I said, uh, "Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but Mr. Vice President, it's very important that we do a news conference when this is over so Reverend Jackson can go out and see the press. And we're losing the light outside. If this meeting goes on much longer, and i turned to Reverend Jackson and said, you won't be able to do your news conference. And he stood straight up and said, let's, let's go. go. <laughs> you knew, uh, so you I, knew I did, what made and, and it. And it started what has become a long time, of very, uh, very great relationship with Reverend Jackson because yeah. we understand each other. Let's talk about one other thing wrapping up the nomination, the convention. You did something that was seen as politically unusual and politically risky. In your acceptance speech, you told the truth. You said, taxes are going to be raised. I just told you, Ronald Reagan won't. And, And that became a significant part of our economic history. If you go forward the next 30 years, Did you feel some compunction to uh, to do that? Was it a political strategy? We had a big deficit. It had to be dealt with. I thought
2: part of the answer had to be tax increases. And I thought that I would gain credibility with the public for honesty if I told them that. So I did. A lot of people would say, I admire that, but uh, we now know millions of them said, hell no, we're not going to pay higher taxes. And we're going to teach this guy a lesson.
1: And the next uh, act in that trauma was, ironically, George Bush, 41, four years later, saying, read my lips, I won't raise your taxes, then having to raise taxes and losing.
2: This is me, and I'm kind of bragging, but I I think I had an inclination to do it straight and right. Uh, And I think most of the time I did that. It didn't always work out. Sometimes telling the truth, for example, on taxes, probably hurt me. I've noticed this; that no one's done it since. So I think I taught that lesson anyway. But what what are we going to do as a nation if we can't talk about something as basic as that?
1: Well, I will make one comment and then ask one last question on this subject. Uh, the comment is: I can tell you from experience that does constitute bragging. From Walter Mondale. (laughs) (laughs) Most people (laughs) would not think that is bragging, but I I, I get it. Second, I'd say the same question about Ferraro. If you had to do it over, would you do it again? Would you give the same speech and say that, you know, be honest, we're going to have to raise taxes? Yes,
2: I think I would. It had to be said, if I had been elected, it would have been much easier for me to go ahead and do it. Uh, You know, usually what happens, a guy gets elected— Person gets elected, He say, oh, I just discovered we've got a deficit here. People don't believe that. But that's usually how it happens after the election.
1: Well, just uh, for context's sake, uh, I will remember that you were harshly criticized for your connection to the last year of the Carter Administration, when the deficit rose to thirty-three billion dollars, yeah. as opposed to uh, the Trump deficit that now uh, one clocks trillion. in at one trillion a one year. Trillion. Yeah, we were pikers. Yeah, pikers. <laughs> so now it's time to take on a popular incumbent president. I do remember you got a bounce out of the convention. There was one poll, and only one that had you slightly ahead. It was a Newsweek poll, which which we celebrated all the way to northern Minnesota for for a week off. But you were taking on a very popular, you knew this was a very steep mountain. Tell me what you thought going into the fall about Reagan as a politician and as a man. I was just starting to get
2: uh, increasingly impressed with his public skills. He was a remarkable public political figure. You know, I didn't agree with his positions at all, but he and he he was not mean. I didn't. I, we didn't have any of that stuff that we we're here now.
1: Well, he he really, from from my vantage point, was really the first president that brought, and it's a loose term, but entertainment into yeah, politics. Yeah. That uh, you know, there's a, a famous line in Marty Shram's book about the Reagan presidency where Mike Deaver talks about. When they watched the news at night, they'd watch it with the sound down because the words didn't matter. It was the <laughs> pictures. It was how he carried himself. Yes. And, you know, in many ways, he his skills as an actor served him well in a business that was becoming increasingly entertainment-oriented. And you'd see it later on. When with, you see
2: his—both elections were runaway elections. Yeah.
1: From my perspective, um, you were not an entertainer. I one, think we can agree on that, and the yes. public
2: agree. No, I'm, I was a.
1: One of one of the uh, frustrations that I remember having was that in private, you were warm, generous, funny times around the kids, even a little silly. Yeah. Uh, but when you went out to campaign for president, you were this is something that requires dignity and, and seriousness. I don't, I don't know
2: how many people have just told me something like you just yeah. said, but I was out there, boy, I was kind of a serious
1: lawyer. Yeah. So coming out of the convention, I think the campaign knew. You certainly knew instinctually this was going to be a very tough race. Oh, yeah. And one of the decisions that I remember, because it had implications for my life, was you wanted the campaign out of Washington. You wanted to move back to Minnesota and really concentrate on the debates because that's where you thought your opportunity was. Talk about that a little bit, about how important the debates were. Uh, Let me first say, I thought if I ran the
2: campaign out of my home in Minnesota, it would have better, be received better by the public. My hope was that I could, in those debates, score against Reagan in a way that would set me up for the presidency. I didn't think Reagan was a strong debater, and uh, he was certainly not careful with the facts. And that was my strategy. And we spent a lot of time preparing for debates. We had uh, practice debates in my living room and so on.
1: The first debate, most people consider that you won, you had a strong performance. But I think the most distinctive thing about the debate was at the end, when President Reagan started talking about uh, a journey yeah. uh, in <laughs> Big Sur, and yeah. and he kind of lost his mind. Uh, for well, that, about that two was a
2: standard pitch for him, and he lost it somewhere.
1: So what what was going through your mind is you're standing there on the stage, well, and well, the President I, of the United States and your opponent,
2: and I knew is, he was babbling. Rat- yeah, I did the best I could, and afterward, one of the newsmen said, "You made a bad mistake here." I said, it "Was that you should have offered your time to him?" And let him go on because he had obviously lost his way. Yeah.
1: His performance, probably more than anything, breathed new life into the campaign. It I, did. Think that, I think there was a sense that, you know, this was this was real. We've seen this before. Uh, incumbent presidents rarely do well in their first debate. The second debate was kind of the revenge of the great one liner. Yep. What saved you in the primaries uh, with something as simple as where's the beef? his he not holding your youthful inexperience against yep. you kind of saved yep. him.
2: And I don't think my reaction was very good. I just laughed at it and so on. But I think that sold with the American people, that he was experienced, he had a nice way about himself, and I couldn't handle that issue. You know, he charged me with being too young when well, I was 56, and that he was just in his prime, and he was, what, 70?
1: Seven, mid-70s, early 70s. Yeah, yeah. so in, in a sense, it was very bad rap, but it worked. No, 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 it it, it it did work. But he he did it, and you mentioned it earlier, he wasn't mean. No, no, never. He wasn't mean. And that's, you know, it's one of the things that I remember worked for him even in 1980. Mm-hmm. Because as good a man, as generous a man as President Carter was he could be caustic. He went after Reagan in a very personal way because I think yeah, it I just that. baffled him that, yeah. the, people, that the public would, would support someone like that. Yeah. And Reagan did it with such a gentle touch.
2: He knew how to do it, and, and he, there was no, as I said earlier, no
1: meanness to the guy. I think the public liked that a lot. Let me change gears a little bit here. A lot of things have changed in politics, but particularly the relationship between politicians and the media you had a very good relationships with uh, members of the press. You'd known a lot of them for a long time. There certainly were no politician thinks they get covered well, but you spent a lot of time and effort, and I think there was respect for what they were doing. Uh, talk about how you approach the media and, and just observations on how things have changed.
2: Well, you described uh, it
1: about the way I
2: would describe it. I think I I always tried to Tell the truth. I um, never tried uh, cynical tricks with the press. And I think over the months, they came to expect that of me. And and it was a good relationship. It was adversarial, as it must be. But there was an underlying sense of respect going both ways.
1: You mentioned uh, earlier about a politician's feel being better than any poll. Yeah. I actually believe that. The last, I want to say, ten days of that campaign were electric. Uh, the 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 crowds grew, doubled, and tripled. There was so much enthusiasm. Was there a moment there where you thought that was something that could carry the day, or did you look at the polls and say there was never,
2: never a time when I thought I had what it needed to win? Um, I I thought I'd do a little bit better than we did, but even though the crowds were great, and they were great. And we had a lot of excitement. Deep down, looking at him, I didn't think so.
1: Let me take you to Election Day, November 1984. I think you knew what the result was going to be. Talk about the people closest to you, how you helped them uh, that day, you know, deal with this.
2: I knew that this was going to hurt them as much or more than it hurt me, and I tried to be kind to them, thank them, let them know how much I appreciated how I admired their talent, because I had a really talented crew. And I hope that did some good, but I noticed some tears in eyes that night.
1: There there certainly were. um, Speaking from my own experience, I know you came back at one point and talked to the staff, and it's something I, I take with me every day. In addition to thanking us, there was a call to arms that, oh, this, yes. that this wasn't over. And I I think the, the phrase was that the seeds of defeat are always sown in victory and the seeds of victory are always sown in defeat. Yes. And and I'll always remember that. And this,
2: this is not the end. This is the beginning. I want you to go out and use your talents
1: to help change this country. And if you look at who was on that campaign staff, they have gone on to serve in the yeah. highest levels of government. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's— it's remarkable. Personally, how did you deal with it? There is a grieving process. And when did you feel normal again? Well, it took me a couple months.
2: I, one of the things I found was I couldn't sleep. So I'd go to bed around 9 o'clock because I was tired, wake up at 9.30, and stay awake all night. Couldn't. I started reading books, nothing else I could do. And uh, slowly, in about a month or six weeks, I find I was sleeping better.
1: But, boy, it, it was hard cutting through that. This, this is a story you probably won't remember, but I'll never forget. Our friend, Mike Berman, the mm-hmm. one that, that I'm afraid of, decided that when you were going on vacation after the um, election with your family that you needed a staff person. And Mike decided that I needed to be that staff person. <laughs> you know, we'd all worked hard. I yeah. was I was tired, uh, even yeah. as a young person. I don't know how people older were doing it. We went out to the Virgin Islands. And I do remember that in one of the few moments that you lost your reserve nature with me. I came over, and I think you were pondering the defeat and the future, and you were on St. John's. And I, I kind of walked in, and you, you didn't want to see a staff person, and— you look, looked at me and said, who decided we should be staying here? And I said, well, I don't know. Some, someone decided. I probably blame Berman. And I said, and you went, you pointed, you said, look over there. Who's staying over there? And I said, I don't know. And you told me it was, I think it was Governor DuPont who had just lost his race. And over to the right was another politician um, who had just lost his race. And he said, did you think I wanted to go to an island of losers? <laughs> And I just—I'd forgotten. That. Uh, I, I just kind of stood there and thought, I don't really know what to do here. I think I'll just look at my shoes. Um, <laughs>
2: it shows you I was having trouble.
1: No, and it was you know it's 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 understandable. I do want to say I'm going to take this to the future because I do want to know what you think about what's going on now. But uh, before leaving the campaign, I just want to underline the idea that I don't know that politicians, public servants, people who run for president, really get a chance to focus on the impact they have on other people's lives and what other people take even in defeat. And I can tell you from a personal point of view, I've done a lot in politics. I've done a lot in my life. Nothing was more important. Nothing was more rewarding than working on that campaign. And I will take that with me for, and I'll have that forever. That's and, and, and there are so many other people. you know, we, we occasionally get together, we were, some of us were gathered for yeah, your 90th did. birthday. Yeah. and all of those people are successful, most of them are happy, but when, when we talk, we all say the same thing, which is it may have been an election drubbing, but it was the single most important thing we thought we did, and we, we do owe that to you, and I think people should know that.
2: Thank you. That that means so much to me. You know, I believe we all took that campaign seriously. We wanted to win, but we wanted to stand for ideas that would be important to America's future. We didn't get to implement them, but those ideas were not dead with us. And after the campaign, we all went on in our own way, uh, trying to... Uh, get someone behind them. I think you're still doing that. And I know a lot of others have spent their professional careers trying to get involved some way to make a difference. And
1: I'm very, very, very proud to have been a part of it. So let's turn to the current day. You have a perspective that very few people have. Uh, (laughs) There are Twenty-one Democrats still running for president. By the time we our listeners hear this, there could be less.
0: Could um, be more. But there's,
1: or could, there could be more. <laughs> having run for president, having gotten the nomination, having gone through a general election, when and if these people call you, what's your advice for them? I've been supporting Amy Klobuchar. I am supporting her. I know her
2: and like her lover. And uh, she's very bright and gifted. The big test is going to be Iowa now. But uh, I know a lot of the others. We're friends. I try to connect with them when I'm not involved in the campaign. If they, if they call me, I always take the call. The thing that bothers me most is there are way too many candidates. we got to get this down to three or four candidates within the near future so that the public can, can see a party that can control itself. Because if... if if the Democratic Party looks like it can't do its business. So that's that's the first thing. How do we get this sorted out? So I think there's a lot of people running because they're getting free coverage. And um, that should not be our concern. The party leadership needs to develop some rules where we have a quicker decision process.
1: How much has changed since you... You ran for president. What what parts are good? What parts are awful?
2: <laughs> well, I think I think the basic campaigns require the same thing. We need you need to know what you're talking about. You need to have good values and uh, views. You need to have a lot of energy, <laughs> endless energy. But a lot of things have changed. Big money. We, we had money around, but now it's, it's just millions of dollars sloshing around, and it's not good for anybody. The party rules, in the interest of openness, has created this bizarre situation where we have 22, 23 cans, who knows what. And these debates are endless, and uh, how the public can follow that or whether they want to follow it is beyond me. We didn't have it that way. We need to change the rules to make a decision. I'd like to see us put in some rules to uh, control money, to require accountability for spending and for uh, showing
1: people who's putting up the money. That's not happening now. One of my former bosses, uh, President Clinton, he was meeting with someone who was running for Congress, and I was standing in the corner, and when it was over... I said, you know, what do you think? Do you think that guy can win? And he said, no chance. And I was like, why? (laughs) And he said, because when I asked him about his campaign, he talked about himself. I said, what do you (laughs) mean? And he looked at me and he said, it's very simple. People who get into politics for themselves tend to not do well. People who get in and talk about people and what they can do for people they're the ones. Uh, yeah. uh, who... and this who guy developed. was just talking about himself. Yes, huh? yes. Yep. So yep. And it I made think, me it made me think of you and and the campaign. My guess is you agree with that. Absolutely, makes sense to me.
2: You know, Clinton is a controversial figure, but boy, was he a good candidate. You you were with him, and he he got into that race for the presidency. He he was clearly the master. He went right to the top. He won the presidency clean and clear.
1: And, and I think he was a good president. And he could answer the question that I think a lot of the Democrats in the race can answer, which is the kind of famous Roger Mudd question you remember of Ted Kennedy <laughs> yeah. of why Why are you running? I, I don't know that a lot of the field right now could tell you that. Yeah,
2: I'm, I was watching that interview, and I was flabbergasted by it.
1: I couldn't answer it. Yeah, it couldn't. Let me uh, finish with one uh, last question, and you can expound as much as you want, or you can def- you can demur. But from your perspective, what's the threat of a demagogue like Donald Trump to our democracy and our our values and our system of government?
2: Well, it's always damaging. But, and this is my personal view. I think this day will pass. He's got uh, some support, that's sh- for sure. He's the president. The uh, Democrats ha- haven't sorted out, are themselves out yet, as we talked. I think the American people are, are very aware of this problem, and I, and I think it'll work out. I don't like it at all, but I'm not the alarmist. I'm not. I don't think we're going to lose the American
1: way. It's a privilege and an honor to have spent this time with you. I appreciate your wisdom, and I think our listeners uh, will benefit from your perspective having been in the race. And more than anything, it's just great to see you again, sir.
2: Thank you, Joe. Good to see you again. You're looking good. Well, you're
1: looking good, too. (laughs)
0: Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.